KO's got you covered this footy season with every game of every round live and ad break free during play. Wow, in the AFL this week, there are some huge games. Collingwood versus Adelaide, live with no ad breaks during play, exclusive in Victoria. Giants versus Bulldogs. Oh, I remember that game. I think it was 2016 at Giants Stadium to get the Bulldogs into the grand final. I will never forget that one. Live with no ad breaks free during play, exclusive in Victoria. And Essendon versus North Melbourne. Geez, that's the old Ben McKay Cup. Exclusive to Fox Footy, available on KO. Don't forget those NBA playoffs. They are dominating at the moment. It is just getting bigger and better than ever. Watch every game of both Eastern and Western Conferences finals live with ESPN on KO. There's plenty of room for everyone, no matter what you want to watch. So get on board with KO. Now also available on Hubble. Hi fam, it's Dylan's mum, Deborah. This is Dylan Friends. He's like, you can embarrass yourself. And I was like, bro, do you want me to do all seven verses? Bit arrogant. Didn't know all yeah. seven. <laughs> I've been in a bad team for 10 years and we got a chance to do something pretty special this year. All you can do is put your hand up and say you're wrong. Banter is a way that guys connect. It's a way that we can kind of play it safe with someone until we get to know them. I try to fix people sometimes. I'm like, Dan, stop doing that. Just listen. And you stack on top of that the habit of not taking your phone when you take your dog. It's easy. They had no other way to get out of the cave and we either turn our backs on them, in which case they're going to die, or we give this crazy idea a go. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Curtis, welcome to the pod. Yeah, thanks. Cheers for having me. Mate, this is um, unbelievable. Up in Brisbane, your hometown, for now anyway. Yeah, I really appreciate you making the time. Yeah, it's obviously only been up here for just uh, just under 12 months now, but I have been based here in the army and stuff, so know the place fairly well. So yeah, don't live too far away from where we're chatting right now. You were just saying it's a um, up and coming spot. I, I've been to Brisbane a couple of times up here for, for footy and stuff, but I haven't actually stayed in this sort of area. It's so trendy, man. Like yeah, I can't believe how cool it super is. Super trendy. What, what um, would you call this area? Is it f- this is the valley, but the valley. it's like right on the edge of like New Farm and, and Tenerife. So yeah. New Farm is like gentrified a lot and this area is gentrified a lot. And like this particular hotel, the Carlisle, it was like from scratch, like got an architect in there and design it. It cost bucket loads and I think they're printing money now. So, yeah, I think they've yeah. done pretty well. Yeah, um, yeah. It's from, definitely on the business card, <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. It's all around the, the, the Brisbane Games as well, like the Olympics that's coming in 2032. There's a bit of appetite for people to get apartments and all that sort of stuff. There's construction everywhere. Um, you know, Brisbane's a growing city and, you know, Everyone's sick of paying money. Sydney prices for houses, so they're coming up here. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. What's your um, what's your day to day like at the moment? So, what's your what's your sort of what's your days looking like? Yeah, it's a bit of a mixed bag, really, because I've had this year off, so yep. my routine's sort of been thrown out the window um, through you know from training wise. So that routine's sort of been put on the burner, and I've been for, more focused on like life things, so things that work and and training comes second. So yeah, I've jo- enjoyed like going learning how to ski, and but I've been doing a lot of public speaking and doing some uni on the side and yeah just a bit of everything really got a few committee positions and things like that so keeps me really busy I can imagine man I can absolutely imagine you're saying as well you get down to Melbourne a bit and do some work with some footy clubs as well when the season's going yeah yeah so when they're having big, big like events or in between like rounds and things like that got down to Carlton uh, this year and then uh, spoke to the Tigers before their Anzac Day game which was pretty cool as well 
Yeah, incredible, mate. I can't wait to um, unpack your story today. And I'm sure it's a very uh, one that a lot of our audience will, will get a lot of inspiration from because it's absolutely incredible without. It's funny, like when I chat to people like you, I, I like to have as much sort of broadness, but I don't want to yep. go too far <laughs> in because you can sort of ruin it and then like yeah. try and get yep. to certain parts. So really keen to um, unpack it today, mate. But tell us a bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up? I know you're a, a Kiwi at heart. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I grew up in New Zealand, a bit all over the place. We moved around a bit, um, sort of four years, five years and then move, move, move. Um, so was born in Dunedin down south and then was living in Alexander and then Wanaka, then moved to Christchurch. And then my parents just decided they want a lifestyle change. So we moved over to Western Australia out in the sticks on a farm, like just away from the mountains as far as they could That's get. That's one of the weirdest places to move from New Zealand, yeah. I feel like. Yeah, to it was, WA. It was very different, but at the same time, you know, a great experience. And I, I always think back to that time growing up on a farm, like with great fondness. You know, you, got, you learn how to drive when you're like 12 years old and <laughs> helping dad, you know, on, on the farm. So it was, it was really good and did a bit of boarding school there. So started started high school, went to boarding school in Perth, started to follow the, the West Coast Eagles at the time. Uh, still do, but that's not, not something to brag about at the moment. Not at the moment. They're just rebuild phase, rebuild <laughs> <Yeah>. phase. <laughs> and then, uh, Parents had some family sort of uh, land to manage, so they moved back to Queenstown, back to New Zealand, into Queenstown, which is where my grandparents were at the time. That's another amazing place to grow up. All the outdoor adventure you can have on a platter, really, and it's part of your school there. So, like I'd, you know, on Fridays we'd only do half day school, and then we'd go snowboarding or, or hiking or kayaking in the afternoons or, or in the mornings, whatever. So um, it was an amazing lifestyle. And then, you know, as we get to the end of school, we always get asked that question, what we want to do with ourselves. You know, a lot of my friends were heading off to university. I wasn't the most astute student, so um, I was more interested in what was going on outside. So I was good at PE and outdoor rec and stuff. So more interested in, in the adventure. So I sort of weighed up my options. When I lived in WA, I had dual citizenship. So mm -hmm. I got it before they changed the rules there, which was nice. So I had the option to sort of move Australia, New Zealand and thought about, you know, doing, becoming a builder and all that sort of stuff. As a few friends had done that, they'd left school early and I would have been behind them all. And I was like, ah, oh, no bugger it. I might, might join the army, you know, something outside, you know, team orientated, quite like sport. And, and I felt like the army was sort of a, an extension of, of team sport and, you know, in a, in a professionalism sort of way and an employment way. So I, um, decided to, uh, enlist in the Australian Army, just sort of down the road here. So yeah, it's a it's an interesting one, isn't it? Like for me, I, I've never had anyone in the, in the army or defence force in my sort of lot, my family. So it's mm. something that yeah, neither I did I. Yeah, that, yeah, that's it. That was my next question. Like, did you have someone that was there? Like, where did the the passion come from? I suppose. No, I think I had it's like an open day, or was there someone that yeah, you sort of? Met? I always I always sort of saw myself going towards the military in a way, and initially I like I was pretty keen on aviation, like jet being a fighter pilot or or a mechanic or something like that and that's actually what i came over to do as an aircraft technician yeah. so helicopter mechanic wow. in the army so um i always had that sort of sense to to do that and my cousin was a helicopter pilot in queenstown so on work experience days i go hey jason can i you know, come work for you guys you know polish a helicopter sweep the hangar get some helicopter rides and it's sort of like that was attractive to me so i was like oh doing anything with helicopters would be rad so I was pretty keen on that, so that's that's what sort of drew me to it. But the the link, as I said before, towards the adventure and the outdoors mm. and the team team sort of orientated activities was was what sort of drew me to it as well. So, and obviously all the stories and the movies and the books and all that sort of thing was was something that you know, I was always interested in as a kid. So pretty obvious sort of lineage when you line it all up. 
uh, down that path. Definitely. Uh, we the, the reason, you know, firstly, your story is incredible, but another thing that I'm always really interested in is the Army and the Defence Force. Mm. I spoke to a couple of people before as well. Hugo Tubi, a young guy who's had an incredible journey with some with some health battles, but obviously was in the in the Army. Mm-hmm. And also Mark Wales, who was in the SAS, who's done some cool things. So I know that feeling of a lot of young guys yeah. that have listened to that since and been like, what a lifestyle to live. Yeah, it is. Would you, would you recommend it for someone? Yeah, 100%. Looking, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the opportunity to travel, to, to see new things, different cultures, different experiences, you know, sights and sounds, you know, um, you know, not always the most glamorous places we get to go to, but when we go to those places, we make huge differences and it's yeah. regardless of what type of role, you could be an infantry soldier, but you could be still helping in a, in a way you're providing security and stability to the that area so whatever you know location we get put it's it's always a way um to to feel like you're contributing to the, the wider community and especially on behalf of australia which is sometimes sort of as a young bloke you don't really understand until it's not until later that you understand you know what that actually means when you're there you, you've got a, a responsibility to sort of be representative of Australia and our values and and what we can achieve here in Australia overseas as well and try and sort of place some stability, security, you know, and, and hopefully benefit the society around them. So, mm. you know, it is it is a great opportunity to also learn, learn new skills whilst getting paid fairly well. Like I had a few friends, as I said, that would, went off to chippies and with sparkies, but they were getting apprenticeship wages, but in the military you get like full blown wage. So it's you know you're on sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year starting. Like mm. it's it's a lot more than what a, a you know apprentice gets. But and you're in the army for you know you have to do your mandatory time. So uh, once you sign up, so if it's a non technical trade like my role was, it's a four years. But if it's a technical trade, it's six years. So it's not that not that long. Might feel like a long time, especially when you're eighteen signing up and you're coming out when you're twenty four. But it flies by and you make so such good mates. And I think that's one of the reasons why I stuck around so long. Unbelievable. Jumping forward, but going back, you're saying about representing your country. And this is something mm-hmm. I actually haven't really thought about, but I could tell like in, in your voice, that obviously means a lot to you. Overseas, like what was the impression of an, an Australian soldier? Like, was that something that you could understand or was there, was there a value that's like that unbeknown sort of, once you go in there, this is how you have to sort of. Yeah, well, we're, we're seen as, you know, someone who can bring in and we bring in a lot of resources with us, you yeah. know, food, water, equipment, materials, building materials. In my role, I should point out, I was a combat engineer that mm. didn't quite get down the aircraft tech. So we're effectively like very broad skilled laborers that can do everything all that laboring stuff under fire but also act as like a combat engineer so demolitions and all that sort of stuff as well so very broad but we'll get into that bit later but as like a representative coming into a country we're generally going into a third world country so that the local populace will see us as like they've got everything so a lot of the kids are especially attuned to this. You know, we come in with like bottles of water or, you know, lots of food and they're, you know, potentially malnourished and mm-hmm. don't have clean drinking water and they know we've got it. So we're always seen as like someone who's bringing in the good stuff, which is what we have here in Australia. That yeah. we turn on our tap, we can drink the water, no worries. So having that opportunity to be sort of an example of what they could achieve, given their, you know, opportunity and resources provided to them, they could, you know, you have to think about that as as a, an Australian overseas, just as a tourist, let alone, you know, as as a soldier mm-hmm. as well. What was your first impressions when you first joined the Army? What was things you didn't expect versus things you you, you were surprised with how physically easy it was like i i was incredibly fit when i joined i was 17 when i you don't hear that every day time at like when i went down the path of recruitment but when i 
I enlisted and went away to basic training. I was 18 and I was like fit, but I wasn't, I wasn't as fit. I yeah. was very much just keen as beans as in, in just wanting to, to do well. And I was like, oh, this is like, I lost fitness when I enlisted. <laughs> so um, it was a bit of a, a strange sort of feeling because you know, I, I love to run and that was something that you didn't do much of. And when you did, the only time you got to run at your own pace was when you were getting tested. And a lot of the time you're not getting tested, you get tested like three times the whole process. So in basic training, and then it's not until outside of basic training that you can go and do your own sort of fitness in a way, but you still have to do group fitness. And the group fitness is interesting because the team is only as fast as its slowest person. Yeah. So you need to sort of help that slowest person go faster. So you can't go as fast as the fastest person. It's just not possible. And that's, that was the strange sort of rethinking of, of the process of what we're trying to achieve, especially when it came to the fitness. Wow. So, yeah. Was that challenging? Uh, not really. Like just, you just got to slow it down a bit and, yeah. and you know, other people were better at other things than I was. So yeah, it's just a matter of getting your head around that. You know, I could have been better at chin-ups, but I was you know, good enough to, to yeah. pass all the tests and get it done. But yeah, and it wasn't until I got past basic training and then got into my engineer training, uh, my employment specific training, IETs as they call it, that, that I could go and do my own, own thing and, and yeah. really sort of get back my fitness of what I was. Would you say it was more mental? than anything yeah. like was there a lot of education a lot of that mental training yeah, there's sort a lot of stuff a lot of lectures like very expediated learning and high pressured learning so yeah. i wouldn't say high pressure there's no like not a massive repercussions if you don't learn it but you might get yelled at which no one wants now, that's just the way humans are we, we avoid confrontation and most of us do at all costs and if you're wrong it is in front of everyone and you're sort of pointed out that you are wrong and that's an incredible way to learn but but uh, always you know sometimes one of those things you just you don't want to do it as well like you don't want to be wrong so you're you're trying to absorb all these you know rules of engagement or how to strip and assemble the, the rifle or iron your, your, your uniform and things like that so mm. that that's you know all these mundane little tasks that that are so mediocre but they actually train you in a bigger aspect of of attention to detail and, and accuracy. There's something that uh, there's a, uh, I, I hate saying a, a TikTok, but it's like a YouTube video I watch all the time and it's talking about making your bed. And I think it's from the army. I'm, I'm interested to know if it's, if it is as strict as, as this yeah, so, or these so things that, are in place. What you're talking about is a, a US army general yes. doing a speech at a university. And he's talking about how making your bed is the most important task of the day because it sets you up. I don't do this, by the way. Yeah. Um, it sets you up for success in every activity that you do from there on for. So if you start the day with success to achieve the task, which is set out, you're then uh, setting precedence. Um, but yeah, and the beds are very strict. Like if they're not made, then I'll come around and check them. Like every morning, check them. Because I'll, I'll talk about how they wake up. So you're asleep and it's 6 a.m. and you could be out cold and the corporal goes hallway, whatever platoon you are. We were 32, hallway 32. And everyone yells, 32. So you're like woken up, like screen, and then you got to rip all your sheets off your bed, put them over your shoulder, and run out to the hallway. And you line up in the hallway, and you go through and do roll call. And it's just calling your number one, two, three, all the way down to like 52 or whatever it is, and and how many people there. So you've stripped your bed, and then he goes, "This is what we're going to do. We're going to make the beds. You're going to do the toilet, shower, shower, shave. They call it, and and then make your beds, and then be ready to go in 15 minutes. And you're like, okay, cool, bang, off you go." Make your bed, bang, 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 with your bed buddy because you got 
two sort of two beds next to each other. You make your bed real quick, so you rip it out from the wall. Do hospital corners, make it perfect, you know, thirty centimeter, all that sort of stuff. There's measurements towards it, and then you make your bed, and then you rip down, go go have your shave and brush your teeth, whatever, and then you get dressed, and then you come back outside and line up again, and then the corporal will walk down or sergeant, whoever it is, walk down and check all the rooms, and then he'll rip the beds apart if they're not not correct, and he'll walk around with a thirty centimeter ruler and, and measure them. So Fucking it is, hell. yeah, it is strict. <laughs> it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then a lot of the time they don't. Well, our platoon they didn't yell all that much. They just were like, "That's wrong." Woof, yeah. and just rip it all apart, and you're just like, "God." damn it like even your wardrobe has to be set like dimensions for where mm. how big your folded your handkerchiefs are like that <laughs> it's yeah it's pretty particular do you struggle to see the importance of that and, and what is the importance of it? it yeah at the time you're just like this is ridiculous like there's no actual reason to make this as neat as what they want it but what it does it's like instilling attention to detail so it's the smallest detail or pattern and routine that you can set and, and all those things come together to create a really efficient and really, really direct process of task. So making sure that your brass is polished to perfection because when you get given your brass buckles, they're like rusted, they're gone green and you have to polish them up to like a mirror finish. And that task takes a long time because you have to strip it all down and, and build it up. And it's just like those little tasks, you get better and better and better at them, you get more more accurate, you get to see the perfection of, of yeah. that task and it might be you know you might be helping other people out to do it as well because i was pretty good at ironing pants and pants always were, were tricky but other people were better at ironing the shirts so i would do their pants and they would do my shirts so working together achieved the goal as well so but you know overall you come out the other end and you're just like well this is why, why did i do that like yeah, <laughs> yeah. Is, is the message as well like I, I can imagine when the little things all add up to the important things yep. and it's like when you actually do get out into to battle all these really dangerous areas you are in a life or death situation that need to be done to procedure yeah well it's that that word i said the words i said for attention to detail yeah. so if you don't have your water bottles full and then you have to go out on like a 15 20 k pack march and you, you know, run out of water because your water bottle wasn't full that it's just those little things like that or your your buckles aren't or your pockets not done up and you you have to go to ground or you jump down on a, in a fighting pit and your shit falls out of your pocket you know that's that's the little attention to detail things that, that the, the corporals would go why is your pocket undone your section's dead everyone get down on the ground and let a crawl like yeah. and, and that's just crawling around <laughs> yeah. Fucking yeah. Yeah. how long were you in training before your first deployment um, so three months basic training, three and a half months engineer training, and then you go to your unit. So yep. and that's like your regiment, your posting order. Um, so we went, I went up to Darwin, and I was there for probably six months, and then I got put on a training mission over to Malaysia to do jungle training, which was horrible, but good training. And then um, came back, and then had probably like a month off. And then got selected to go on pre-deployment training for East Timor. So that was wow. so I got to my unit in 2007, and I was in East Timor in June 2000, oh, October 2008. So yeah, like a year pretty much. What's that like when you land down your first time? Is it a bit? Of, um, were you ready? I think we were definitely on that yeah. deployment because that deployment was not a combat deployment; it was humanitarian. So yeah. we're going over there to help build you know, roads, bridges, water tanks, you know, medical centers, basic infrastructure, sort of assistance, and we're doing like on base support as well and not no real security threat or issues 
while we were there, you know, there was a few threats or, or rumors that there was going to be a protest or a riot or something like yeah. that, which was common in East Timor at that period of time. But for us as engineers, we do everything with security in mind, but our, our primary role was to get the building done or, or what put the water tank up or whatever. So it was an amazing deployment. I love that deployment. We felt like we made a real big difference to the people in which we were helping there and what the reason why we were going there. And that um, appreciation from the people was was evident mm. like it, it, it was so obvious that we were helping so that means you feel valued you feel like there's a point of us being there but then you know when you go into a combat deployment you're focused around combat and you're focused around security and not getting shot or not getting blown up or you know or, or making sure the assets protected and all that sort of thing whether that's an airfield or a, or a base it doesn't really matter that that prioritization shifts and then you're not actually de- dealing with the people you're not feeling like you're influencing the people that much which is what we found what i found i felt uh in afghanistan in a way mm. yeah. afghanistan it's it's just you know from growing up in anyone my age born in in that era and, and yourself alike mm. it, straight away when you say that you think of war and which is which is sad because i know there are beautiful parts of the country mm. what was the experience like i know you just mentioned it briefly then but what were your first sort of thoughts when was that your first combat mission yeah yep. yeah what was the thought sort of going into that how was it even briefed like do you sit down and go okay this one's going to be different obviously to a humanitarian service yeah yeah definitely we knew it was going to be way different um even before we got the call up to go it was because you know of the the history of the place yeah. um and my friends that i was up in, in 1c up in darwin with i was now posted into brisbane a unit in brisbane so my mates up in darwin they went over just after i left darwin and yeah there was a couple of guys that got killed and and it was you know and, and the deployment before that was the brisbane unit that i was at that was really bad 2010 2c uh lost a lot of guys i think i lost like five or six guys and you know, that, that's that situation makes you realize that you know where afghanistan is like it's a proper dangerous place it's a proper combat mission it's a place where you have to know what you're doing and you have to be safe at, at, at every every step every 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 corner and, and every mission's done to more in a more structured and regimental manner because of that safety requirement so all the training that you get given is specific around security and safety rather than you know this is how you build a, a shelter or a, or a bridge or something yeah. the bridges will get built in afghanistan but not during my deployment but yeah that sort of stuff you start getting understanding that the dynamic over there is hell of a lot different than east timor and as you said like it's an incredibly beautiful country like crazy beautiful and so different from what we have here the mountains are huge it's a desert but then there's these big like green veins of life where the rivers flow and the kids go to school and the crops crops grow and like that's that's where the life is and that that's like it's a really different place like it's not fields of you know crops Mm. everywhere it's just dry and then and then paddocks like it's it's because of the rivers flow there but in the lead up you know there was training around my role as a combat engineer in this role um, is to provide mobility so the official role of a combat engineer is to provide mobility and deny mobility um, and that can be anything from purifying water or building bridges or building tank ditches or you know defensive things on the beaches you know like on saving private ryan all those dragon's teeth and those pillboxes that's the combat engineer's yeah, role right. that's wow. their job okay. but it's also our job to, to clear that shit if we have to breach the beach so if the the enemy set something up you yep. have to get rid of that's it. that's our job yeah. yeah but it's also our job to set that up as well so they're the two sort of opposites of our role yeah, right. but 
you can't go far without water as well. So we can we can purify seawater sea and all that sort of stuff, which I did on a deployment other other time. But yeah, and then like in a nutshell, we're out there waving a metal detector around across a road or, or a track or, or even just the ground just to see if there's an improvised explosive device or IED landmine uh, underneath the ground. And all of there's a number of different ways in which they can get set off and you sort of learn how those things work and, and what you're looking for and the patterns that the insurgents are using and, and the history and the, the intel of the past and, and, you know, the surrounding areas as well. So, you know, we knew it was going to be a lot more dangerous. So I got selected to do a combat first aid course as well. So I was doing like proper combat casualty injuries like gunshot wounds and amputations and, and all sorts of different things like IVs and morphine and yeah so pretty hectic but at the same time it's what we joined the army to do and, and I often use the sort of the analogy in a way to to being on a sports team and you get, go to training every day training with your mates and you go and keep going but every come day, game day you're sitting on the bench and your mates going out and playing the game you never actually get to use those skills in a real game and not, not to say that Afghanistan's a game. I was just using the analogy of having been trained and not being able to use them. It's been six years I'd been in the army and every week we'd do, you know, 60, 40 combat training to engineer training. Like it was just that the ratio was always being prepared for the combat scenario. And that's the way the military should be. We should always be ready for a fight, but at the same time have those backup skills in, the, in our specialty areas. So, you know, having those having those skills but not, not getting to use them was was part of the reason why most of the guys were so keen to get over there um, and and see you know see if they can do it for real in, in a real situation. So given that we all we're all probably like twenty years old, so we're young and dumb and naive and ignorant about the the actual dangers of what it is. And um, you know, I wouldn't say I would not say complacency gets in there, but it's just keenness and and immaturity of, of ourselves that we we underestimate the enemy sometimes, and mm. and that's or, or they get around us you know it's all it's all a one-upmanship we're trying to trying to beat each other and and that's what that's what it is so it is obviously a dangerous place afghanistan and we got told that there was going to be gunfights on every corner and ieds in every culvert and and you know road and, and it wasn't like that when we arrived at all it was it was incredibly beautiful and you know we were finding a lot of components but not set up devices and that was like that for three months we we're just finding bucket loads of like rpg rounds or devices that were like ready to be laid into the ground or you know components and explosives and and old shells and like then they get these like um they're called directional fragmentation charges so they're like a round cylinder and you float it full of bolts and then you put the explosives on the back of the the bolts there so it shoots out of the cylinder Fucking and on. sends all the bolts everywhere so um yeah, we'd find them ready to be set up and put into the trees or ground or whatever in a haystack so the insurgents can come along and grab it and throw it up where they need but we'd find it before it and then actually went off yeah before it would go off so and that that's good that's it's great because without their devices without their weapons they can't be insurgents anymore so they just go yeah. back to what they're doing so incredibly uh naive question but to confirm when you're going over there this is against the the taliban it was at the time yeah and yeah. and you know, not just the Tal Taliban. There's probably a number of different, yeah. you know, smaller groups like the Al well, I think Al Qaeda is a lot smaller. Those, and then wouldn't be able to tell you all the rest of them. There would be heaps. Crazy. Before, obviously, a pretty life-changing incident mm. um, occurred. Was there any other 
sort of leading towards that any forms of, of combat that you'd seen or any crossings with anyone else that had, had appeared? Was there anything sort of happening prior to, to um, the incident? Not so much where I, where I was going to step on my bomb. There was a few vehicle strikes so they're, and they're Bushmasters and just driven over an IED and those Bushmasters are incredible vehicles and they all survived. But then, you know, you got severe whiplash and a few yeah. broken bones. So Fuck. a couple of boys got sent home. But there was a few gun battles, like small ones, a few pot shots. We'd, we'd not been, my team had not been in any anything. Um, well, I, I lie, there was a few random pot shots at us but like shoot and scoot as they call them they just shoot at us and then run away so it was and we can't move as fast as you know they know the area mm. we need to be sort of we can't just run after them we need to be quite safe and and, and so but you know they know they know that we our firepower and our ability to reach out and get them like with you know the sas or or even like a sniper team or anything like that our our skills and our firepower and everything is worlds apart worlds wow. apart so yeah, yeah. Crazy. Mate, if you're happy to take us through the, the day that, you know, mm -hmm. did change a bit of your life or a lot of yeah, your yeah. life, what um what are your do, – do you have memories of the day? Mm -hmm. Like do you remember a fair bit of like leading up to the incident? Yeah, yeah. I um, remember pretty much everything. Wow. Um, so it was the 23rd of August 2012, um, just over 10 years now, and it was just sort of day four of a five-day patrol. We were out in a very remote corner of the Uruzgan province and – at the time, the American Green Berets were the only coalition forces operating out there. And if uh, the Green Berets are American special forces, so and, and the Green Berets had been in Afghanistan since like October 2001. So they'd been there for a very time. long time and they're very good at neutralizing the enemy. It's the best way to put it. Uh, killing bad guys is mm -hmm. probably the worst way to put it. But they said, uh, you know, when you go out past this hill, you guys are going to get shot at. There's so many IDs out there, so many insurgents. You're like, oh, far out. Like, I just look at the ground, man. Like, I don't, can you guys come with us? They're like, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe. And then the Americans had like this big like blanket freeze on their operations because they had a few green on blues. And a green on blue is when the Afghan forces are sort of infiltrated by the insurgents and they act as Afghan soldiers and they shoot up the coalition forces, which is what happened a few days later but they had had a few around the around the whole of afghanistan so they put a like, couple of day freeze on the, the the whole area so they weren't allowed to come with us which is unfortunate but thankfully as we moved out into the checkpoint area the, the insurgents just left they, we could see them at night time leaving there's like 30 or 40 vans full of fighting age males just bugging out they're like oh they don't want to fight us so which is great so we didn't get shot at which was nice and on the 23rd of August, we were given approval to explosively remove this large boulder that was blocking a big road. So we don't really get to play with explosives all that often in the army as much as we'd like to think we do. Um, so it's a bit exciting. We, we knew what we were doing and you know, we're working about three and a half thousand meters above sea level. It's you know 40 odd degrees, yeah. wearing about 15, 20 kilos worth of kit, probably working 14 hour days and the intensity of what we're doing, the dangers, you know, how focused we had to be fatigue starts setting in and miscommunication and things like that. And you just want to get the job done. You just want to get it done and, and go back to base so you can chill out and, and you know, in the safety and not have to work like an absolute dog. So it, it was hard work. And I wouldn't say it was difficult work. It was just strenuous, like really hard, like physically demanding. You know, you, every time you're waving your metal detector and you get a metal hit, it could be an ID, but it could be a Coke can tab as well. Like it could be a bit of rubbish. It could be a bit of wire 
but you don't know that until you've actually pulled it out of the ground or exposed the IED. So you know, we're doing like 4,000 squats a day. Like it's just, and you've got to put that out and put it in your pocket and wave it again and make, moving through. But anyway, moving forward, we're up there and we've got approval to blow this rock up. And I got a bit confused and went over to a different boulder that was massive and blocking another part of the path. And I'm sitting at this boulder. I'm like, oh, where the boys? My mate, uh, Matt Pitcher, we refer to each other in our last name, so Pitch, he comes over. He's like, mate, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I thought it was this rock. He's like, no, you idiot, it's the other one. I was like, oh, okay, cool. So we'd actually already searched through this area. Myself personally had searched through this area. And um, I was walking along and um, Pitch was behind me, like 10, 15 meters, thankfully. N- next minute, like I'm on the flat of my back, like looking up at the sky and going, what the fuck has just gone? Like what happened? There's like rocks and shit falling from the sky. It's really dark. It's like 11 o'clock, clear blue sky. It's really, really quiet. And I sort of get up, I'm a bit dazed, confused. And I look down, I'm like, holy shit. The blast crater next to me, my metal detector's like obliterated all over the ground, all over the thing. Uh, my rifle's been like snapped in half and sent off to the right-hand side. And then I saw my legs and I was like, this is not good. And then in that moment, like the pain hit me, like, like a freight train. It was so incredibly intense. Like it's very hard for me to explain. It wasn't just like my legs were sore. It was like my ears, my head, my back, my fingers, everything felt the same amount of pain. Like it wasn't just isolated. And so like I grabbed my right leg in agony and I realized that I had a very large wound on the back of my right thigh and I was like grabbing my femur bone. And um, I was like, shit. And then I looked over at my left leg. My left leg was just hammering out blood a lot faster than my right leg. So I just grabbed hold of that and I was like, oh man, like I'm gonna need my tourniquets and I had tourniquets on my body armor. So I ripped one open and unlooped it. And every time I got off my elbows, um, I kept falling backwards because I didn't have the weight of my legs. I couldn't do a sit up um, and that's still the case. <laughs> and trying to loop it over and I, I couldn't do it. And as I said, Pitch was behind me and thankfully uninjured. He had some perforated eardrums so he couldn't hear me too well. but. I yelled at him and he knew that I was in pretty bad shape. So he came sprinting in, applied the first tourniquet, put the other one on on the other leg as well. And then um, the rest of the patrol comes up and and they sort of obviously come across the scene of of destruction and and blood and carnage. I tell my story quite a bit. So I always point out that in that moment I saw in their faces the trauma that I was going through laying on the ground in agony was now becoming their trauma. So... That, that rippling effect of, of trauma doesn't just affect the, the injured victim. It, it affects all, a lot of people around, people that witness things, people that are, you know, relationships and, and you know, family members and, and all that sort of thing. So that, that trauma ripples through all these people and affects so many people. It's not just that person laying on the ground with their legs blown off or whatever, a car crash or, you know, a suicide or whatever. It's, mm. it's so many people. So... But yeah, going back to the story, you know, they're in this situation of shock at the same time. But me, I'm going to more physical shock, so I'm I'm losing blood. And I said, boys, like I need I need an IV. You guys got to get the IV shit out and start setting it up. So you got to set it up, make sure there's no air in the line, otherwise that that can kill you as well. And try, they're trying to do that, and like they're opening it up. But they did what, what we call kit explosion, so they unzip the bag and just went like this, and it's shit went <laughs> everywhere. Like you know, it's like oh, fuck. yeah. But you know, they did that, and then by the time they sort of got things sort of out, the other combat first, uh, yeah, other combat first aider got to me. His name's Cordy Stephen Court. He's still in the army. He was over where the infantry vehicles were, or well, all the vehicles were, and the infantry security team 
was over that way and they're probably about four or five hundred meters away we were, we were we had our own little team with us as well but he was over at the vehicles chilling out he came over and like took over the iv process and thankfully because iv getting access into a vein is, is pretty tricky especially on someone with blood loss shock because um, their veins are really small and he, he managed to get it in thankfully and whilst he's doing that the boys are like what do, you, what do we do now what do we do now? I was like, morphine would be good eh? so <laughs> trying, to, trying, to, trying to talk them through that you know getting the right amount and how to draw it up and then change it over to a sharp needle and, and then jab me and all that sort of thing so you know they were doing it all as as instructed and Cordy's sort of half instructing them as well and I'm trying to be a pain in the ass check the bandages are tight and yeah just the amount of adrenaline I must have had at that moment and the, obviously the, the good training that I had as well um, is the reason I reckon that I was able to to focus and, and sort of relay that information onto them that life-saving information and go through that and, and get them to do what was necessary was you know part and parcel why, why I'm here today so yeah, it's pretty, pretty KO's got you covered this footy season with every game of every round live and ad break free drink play. Wow, in the AFL this week, there are some huge games. Collingwood versus Adelaide, live with no ad break string play, exclusive in Victoria. Giants versus Bulldogs. Oh, I remember that game. I think it was 2016 at Giants Stadium to get the Bulldogs into the grand final. I will never forget that one. Live with no ad breaks free during play. Exclusive in Victoria. And Essendon versus North Melbourne. Geez, that's the old Ben McKay Cup. Exclusive to Fox Footy. Available on KO. Don't forget those NBA playoffs. They are dominating at the moment. It is just getting bigger and better than ever. Watch every game of both Eastern and Western Conferences finals live with ESPN on KO. There's plenty of room for everyone, no matter what you want to watch. So get on board with KO. Now also available on Hubble. It's incredible. You know, we have so many thoughts going through our head. Mm. But then when you really need to focus, it's incre- yep. it's incredible what your brain can go to. Like, it, you yeah. know, I'm saying this and I haven't been through anything like that at all but injuries and stuff like that is that what you were in such a confusing time almost a lot of clarity of just like what you needed to get done yeah it's funny because I remember feeling this feeling of like this short sharp breaths then thinking like why am I breathing like this and why does it feel like this it was weird sort of clarity and I was like this is blood loss shock it was like from my training I was like, I need IV now, like stat. And it was just like this real weird sort of clarity, like you're saying this sort Mm. of, I think as an athlete, we try and find those moments of pure clarity to execute what we're trying to do into perfection, which is actually impossible, but we try to achieve it anyway through training and we get there, we get close to it. When we have those moments in hindsight, looking back and reflection, it's an amazing feeling like, Mm. holy shit, did that happen? Like, how did that happen? How do how did I catch that mark or how did I step that dude or tackle that, get that shot, whatever it is. But in my situation, it was the adrenaline and that pure focus on what needed to be done in that moment was was what was happening. And you, you said fight, flight or flight, but I 100% reckon it was because if, mm. if I laid there, it was I was done. Well, there's, there's three, isn't there? There's fight, flight and freeze. And, you know, all those things and, and the flight wasn't running away anyway. Was I? No. But, yeah, that's pretty much all I could do. And I knew that I had the, the skills and we had the resources in order to, to hopefully save or, or, or do whatever we could given the situation. So. Was it just yourself and the other guy, sorry, I forgot his name. Cordy, yeah. Cordy, that would actually able to be so that the knowledge to know what to do in yeah. that scenario. Like well, if, you, if you had a bit of like a concussion yeah. or something like that, yeah. it would have been quite hard for the, you to like sort of tell people what to be doing. Yeah, yeah. And, and I probably did have a concussion. Yeah. But 
you know, you see a lot of guys you know, out in footy field get concussions and keep playing. They shouldn't, but they do. Mm. And they still know what they're doing and they're still fine. But, you know, take them back behind the and back in the change rooms and go through a concussion test. There's no way they're passing it. Probably wouldn't have passed one either. Pitch, who was just behind me when, I, when the blast went off, he had a mad concussion. Yeah. Like it. It didn't come apparent that he had a concussion like till like four or five hours later, slurring his words and all that sort of thing. And they're like, what's wrong with him? That's weird. Mm -hmm. And then they realized obviously adrenaline's calm back down because the adrenaline's so high, it's sort of masking that that concussion. So yeah, like Cordy was Cordy and myself were the only ones with the skills to do it. So it's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, mm -hmm. you must be incredibly proud of yourself to <laughs> oh. be able to like just go to that point. Well, yeah. because a lot of people you can't. Yeah, but you don't know if you can until you, you until you're you in that it. position, and do you? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't know if I'd be able to do it again. Yeah. And, um, you know, in that that moment, you know, I'm, as I said, checking the bandages and whatnot, and they pick me up and put me onto the stretcher, and you know, we're joking about losing brand new boots and how lucky I was to get out of here so early and all that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, so it, it was a bit of a, a weird situation, but. Or, you know, a pretty shit situation, I should say. But, you know, in that moment, I could, I realized that those guys were, you know, as a part of the trauma as well, I was myself yeah. in a different way, emotional trauma. And I said, like, guys, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I'll, I'll, I'll go to the Paralympics or something. I'll, but it won't be in the green and gold. It'll be in the black and white, obviously, being a Kiwi. And, you know, they, True to the, the Aussie banter, they, they shot back. I suppose you can walk to the chopper then, you bastard. So. <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it? That's a really yeah. like famous uh, part of your story is the fact that already after an injury, within mm. I think it was four hours of rest. Oh, 20 minutes. Within 20 yeah, minutes. Yeah, like literally. Within yeah, 20, 20 minutes, minutes, that was yeah. already going through your head. Yeah, and no, it wasn't like a lot of people like, oh, yeah, he went and did that. But a lot of people think it was like I said that because I was going to go and do that. It was more like I said that because it was a – promise of hope yeah for them like it looked pretty doom and gloom and it probably was and i didn't feel it was doom and gloom yet it just comes in another five minutes time but that moment i was just like well you know like if i can say something to somewhat ease that trauma um yeah. i was going to say it so um yeah, and then they carried me along that four or five hundred meters to, the, to where the vehicles were and where the helicopter was coming and they laid me down and i um was laying there and i was like shit like we can't do anything else like we're, we're, we're we've done everything we can i was made pretty comfortable i had enough morphine on board and you know the iv was going well and like i just that's when i realized that I, like i could die here like yeah. that was this real big like shit this is real bad like the longer that helicopter took the closer i'd come to death like it was just so obvious that there's nothing more we could do i suppose so we spoke about the benefit of you knowing what to do but then also knowing mm. is actually harmful as well because you knew where your body was at yeah you, you said you identified earlier like when you were in shock and what was happening with your blood you yeah. were you seeing those senses coming later on as well i wasn't aware of the blood pressures that yep. were getting done i think cordy was all over it he was doing a heap of them and i was just i knew he was doing them and then i was like oh are you writing these down like you got to write them down and how much morphine you've given me and I was like, get the permanent marker. I think there's one in my kit and like, or your kit or whatever and write on my chest what you've done and what the stats were. And he's like, yeah, 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 sweet. So they started writing. So I had like like a whiteboard of my chest with all my my stats on it. I didn't I didn't, didn't know it at yeah. all. I didn't see it and didn't, didn't really give a shit. Like it is what it is. Yeah. We can't change it. But I was just like, oh, I'll make sure the bandages are tight. You know, there's no bleeding. I had five tourniquets on at the end. Um, oh, okay. So yeah, it was, it was pretty 
pretty dicey. Yeah. And for those who don't know what a tourniquet is, would you just it's yeah, basically it's, Yeah, it's like a seatbelt material like yeah. strap that's probably about, you know, about 70, 80 centimeters long and it's got Velcro on one side and it loops and it it's like a belt and then it loops around and then you got what they call a windless bar, which so you twist it and it gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And you can do it for a leg and, and for an arm. Obviously it's Stop for your bleeding. Limbs. It stops yeah. your bleeding. So you just do it as tight as possible. So yeah, and just just make sure you don't get your nuts caught in the in the, the tourniquet. <laughs> yeah. No taken. No. How long did the chopper take to come? And were you conscious the whole time? Yeah, I was conscious. Yep. The chopper took about 35 to 40 minutes to get yeah. to me. And in Afghanistan, in, in, in any military, and even here in Australia, we have um, this thing called the golden hour. So if we can get like a critically injured person to a high-level medical center within an hour, the golden hour, their chances of survival are significantly increased. So I knew that, you know, that time was ticking and I was like, shit, that's half an hour. Like now we're in trouble half, here. Half an hour there, half yeah, an hour half back. back. Yeah. And because of our remoteness, we had to like relay the radio calls through bases because our radios weren't strong enough to get that far because we were so far away. And um, it took us two days to drive, which is, you'd think that's a long way. Like you probably get here to Melbourne in two days. It's not that far. Like in Afghanistan, two days is probably... Like 60 70 k's so like that's how slow we have to op operate and we can move just due to the ied threat cars and everything yeah well yeah the, the terrain um ieds just the security you can't yep. you know, drive you know off because it's mountainous you got to drive through the valleys and on the roads so you got to search most of that stuff so yeah anyway so but your helicopters are away doing another task and then obviously i got hurt and then they had to get rerouted and they were a bit worried about the the shoot threat so having all the insurgents in the area we knew they were there there's a greater risk of getting a helicopter shot down. So the air traffic controller guy, he just sent the Blackhawks. Blackhawks are actually faster than the gunship helicopters. Okay. So they, there's no point sending in the Apaches if they can't keep up with the Blackhawk because the Blackhawk will get there first and then have to wait. So they just sent them Blackhawks because they knew I was in pretty bad shape. So they got there, landed, threw me in the chopper. There was no like goodbye, see you when you get home or whatever. It was just bang and Get then took me out of there so it's probably about an hour yeah probably an hour 10 hour 20 or something like that back to the back to Tarrant the big multinational base with the hospital there and I was sort of in and out of consciousness as soon as I got on that chopper so I was just like I sort of <laughs> think fuck um, yeah I'm saved type feeling but it was actually very close to, to death on the chopper sort of in and out of consciousness and it was was there a medic with you yeah, on the chopper. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He ripped out, but like not much more capacity to do to anything do, yeah. than I that we already had. He pulled out the, the IVs and put in another one. So we probably had a really small IV cannula, so meaning like small gauge. So he put a real big one so he could flush, put more fluid into me quicker. Probably like you sit on the, the bag as well to make it sort of force it, positive pressure. Sometimes they can't get the veins, so they do what they call an IO. And I don't know if you know an IO is... Um, hmm into osseo i think it's called was when they drill into the bone they usually do it on on males like into the top of the shoulder and it like pumps it straight into the bone like straight in so it's pretty gnarly like <laughs> but thankfully i didn't have any drill bits in yeah. me um yeah and got into the hospital and sort of was put to sleep almost immediately and then i woke up like 15 hours later you we, we mentioned before those moments of clarity and again not sure i'm, I'm sure there was plenty of times in the chopper when you're heading there but I can imagine when you go through something like that, mm. there would be thoughts in your head 
coming through? Like what were, what was going through your head? Was it, you know, I want to make contact with my family? Or did you have your partner at the time back yeah. home? Like was there anything going through like that in your head or was it nearly you had to just stay positive? Um, and- no, I was, I was pretty pretty pessimistic at times. Um, I remember before I got blown on the, the stretcher, before they started to carry me, I was, I was pretty upset that I knew that I disrupted not only my own life but other people's lives and it was it was difficult to understand or the, the the scale of it at that point but knowing that I wasn't able to go on holiday when I got back from Afghanistan or I you know I, I was probably be I wasn't aware of the disability yet and that's something that not many people are aware of until it actually happens yep. so at that point, you know, I was going to heal. I was going to get my prosthetics, and I was just going to walk out. You know, that was that was sort of my mindset. But it was, yeah, it wasn't until I actually came back and, and was in Brisbane and, and healing in the hospital that sort of I realised that, that this was way bigger. The actual change of my life and and Rachel, who's my wife and, and girlfriend at the time, had done, and and to my family as well. That that massive shift. And still to this day, I probably don't understand their perspective of it all. But at the same time, you know, I was sort of aware that, you know, things were changing. Mm. What was your first sort of thoughts when you when you woke up from that 15-hour? I just felt real, like, sorry and sad. Like, it was not, not a feeling of why me. I was just sort of like, this is so shit. Like, I don't know how how much worse this can get. Like, you know, this is, this is terrible. I had a bit of an eye-opening experience and it's probably helped me deal with it a little bit more. It was like when I was getting flown out of Afghanistan into Germany because I flew out through military air, I was loaded onto a plane, a big C-17 American medical evacuation plane. And on my flight, I was pretty banged up, thought I you know, had a pretty shit day. I was like double stacked bunks. I was on the top bunk down one side and on the other side of the plane, I was facing the back on, on a stretcher. There was guys seated and they had all had like broken arms and like you know, things across their eyes and heads, you know, standard sort of battlefield injuries and whatnot. And then if I like leaned around and turned around and looked behind me up the front, there was like two guys having surgery on the flight. So they were like actively dying. So I was just like, man, like I, this, I'm not the worst injured on here. And I'm the only non-American on this flight. And I was like, holy shit, this war in Afghanistan's so much bigger than I realized. And I was there and I was a part of it. I had no idea this was going on. Like Fuck. it was just, I was like, holy crap, like, this is incredible. Like, What a crazy time of emotion. Like you're going through all these things in your head. Yeah. You're obviously shattered and, and sad, as you said, but then you're also having like these like crazy moments of perspective. Yeah, yeah. Like time. it'd just be a massive emotional roller coaster. Yeah. Yeah, and like that that was pretty shit, but I was like, I'm just I just want to go home. I just just want to go home. That's yeah. that's what I want. And I still knew I had to go through hospital in, in Germany and sort of get treated to to fly long distance and whatnot, have a few more surgeries to get clean because there's so much dirt. Like I remember oh, one of my friends, he was he was a combat first aider as well, and he was assisting me coming in off, off the helicopter, and he didn't realize it was me until I got put into the surgical ward. Because I was covered in that much dust. And this is in Afghanistan yeah, still. And he yeah. didn't realize it was me. I was covered in that much d- dirt and dust and grime. I can imagine like infection and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So pretty- just clean you out, clean yep. you out. You're on like so many antibiotics and and you clean all your surgery and all everything's just cleaned out the whole time. Yep. So yeah, and then I was in in the hospital in Germany, and I was in a room with three other Americans 
I was the only one in there at, the, at one point. And then these guys came in, they'd all been in the same vehicle and they'd driven over an ID. And um, the guy next to me, he just had like a couple of broken arms and I think a broken leg. And so he was going to be okay. The guy across me, I can't remember what happened to him. I didn't really talk to him much. And the guy diagonally across from me, he was the driver and he had been burnt from like his waist all the way up over his head. And like every morning they'd have to come in and like debride him. And like the smell was like burnt flesh. It was just horrific. And I was like, man, that memory will stick with me for the rest of my life. And it was, and I was like, fuck, like, I'm glad I'm not that guy. And I bet you he's looking at me going, I'm glad I'm not that guy. Like, fuck. just so crazy. I cannot imagine. Yeah. Like, and I was just one of 200 and what was it, 45 or 47 Australian wounded, physically wounded soldiers. Like, Americans got like, 10,000 or 15,000, probably more than that. And the Brits, probably the same. And then the Afghans, they got like 350,000, like just crazy, crazy. Crazy. Yeah. When did you find out from doctors or, or surgeons that mm. what was going to have to take place with your body physically? It's sort of when I got back here in Brisbane. So I flew back on um, a civilian flight with the medical team. My, my parents flew over to Germany to see me for a couple of days. Rachel, my, my wife now she couldn't get over to me fast enough because she was in new zealand by time i was already on my way back so she would have seen me for two hours and then yeah. we'd jump back on a plane and fly home so i was like do you just, remember the first phone call with her not really nah apparently i, I, I facebook like messaged her on her like profile like back when 2000 obviously instagram's not around then so i just put it on like a her feed i was like hey babe like just woke up from surgery i'll, I'll give you a call i need a sleep send and maybe i thought because Manual. And she had no idea about anything. Well, no, no, she did. She oh, did, okay. yeah. She got a phone call from my mum and obviously and then the military and my mates were looking after her as well. And yeah, so it's not the best way to find no, her. No, no, but it was the first time that I had communicated with her. Yeah. And like I was on a lot of drugs. I can imagine. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's probably nothing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're like you didn't say anything too bad. No, no, it was nothing, nothing, nothing bad. I was just like, oh, I'll talk to you in a bit. I'll give you a call in like 20, 30 minutes when I just have a nap because I was buzzed. Yeah. Um, we had some weird comments on that post. Probably, yeah. Rachel probably was like delete yeah, straight exactly. away. <laughs> so sorry, you get back to um, you get back to Brisbane. Yeah, back to Brizzy. So the military had decided to put me into the Royal Brisbane Hospital because yep. they reckon there was a really good plastic surgeon there that that would be able to help sort of wind up my wounds, or yep. like cover them up. And so they put me into Royal Brisbane because usually the the military guys go into private hospitals. I don't know, maybe they're better, maybe they're not. And for this particular doctor so we went there and i got my surgery and i was in there for about five weeks but it was that's that that last closing up surgery it was meant to be like nine hours because they were going to take a flap for oh, my right. leg like a deep flap with like vessels blood vessels in it and put it onto my leg and i remember going to the surgery and i was like oh like how long because after you get a flat, you can't move because there's little like micro stitches that hold the vessels together. And they're like, oh, you can't move for two weeks after this. And I was like, what? I can't move. And then I went to sleep. I went and went to the surgery. And I was like, just before I went to sleep, I was like, oh, how likely are you going to need to do this flat? Like, like, are you, do you have to do it? Do you have to do it? And they're like, no, no, we, we have to do it. And I was like, fuck, right, on, let's just get it done. So I went into the surgery and I woke up like two and a half hours later and I was like, hang on a minute, like what's, is everything okay? Like what's going on, like what's wrong? And they're like, oh, nothing, you didn't need the flap, we're all good, like just did some skin grafting and, and you, you, could, you should be able to heal and you're, you're good. And I was like, huh, awesome. <laughs> so, and that I think expediated my time dramatically in the hospital. So I was in hospital and then 
the trauma surgeon was like, this is what's going to happen. This is the path you're going to go down. Close up. All your surgery is done now. You're going to pull out a few plates like later, about a year down the track once yep. it's all healed, uh, some bones that are broken. Yeah, and then just a skin graft and all that sort of stuff. Just got to look after your skin now and hope for it to heal. And that was it. Like, that was the last. I had a bit of – I still got a bit of shrapnel in the back of my leg that the doctors have tried to get out um, and couldn't because they would cause more damage trying to get it out than, than actually the benefit of getting it out. Um, just like a little 10 cent piece of something. Don't know, probably like a boot loop or something like that. Wow. I don't know what it is. but So that that all happened. And then the physio came in as, all right, let's, let's start the rehab. Like yep. you've done the recovery, let's do the rehab. And so at this stage, you're still having, you've still got parts of your legs? Yeah, yeah. I've yeah. Still, yeah, so I've got, I'm a below the knee amputee on my left yep. hand side and, and a through the knee amputee. But had they right done side. any amputee at that stage? They had taken off. So after the blast, I was a below the knee amputee on both sides. Both sides, yeah. But on the right hand, I don't remember that at all. You don't remember any of that? No. Yeah. The, the, well, like I remember seeing it. Yeah. Like it, was, it was pretty messy. But um, the right hand side amp, uh, leg, the bone on the lower part of my leg was all shattered. So, yeah. And it was like only like 10, 15 centimeters yeah. of limb left. It was shattered. So they just took it off because yeah. there was more problems with that. You can't put like bolts and all that sort of thing under the sockets with the, the prosthetics because sure. they cause nerve problems and whatnot. Well, you can, but it's, it's not, not ideal. Yeah. So they just took it off. And um, so they, they threw the knee amputation. That's why my prosthetics are different on each side. So, yeah, and that, that's when they sort of laid out like you, you, you severely injured your arm. You, know, you almost lost that, but you didn't, thankfully. Wow. You know, fixed all the fingers and, and all the burns and everything across my arm. Um, yeah, and there was you know, skin graft on the top, and I talked about that big wound on the back yep. of my leg. So the big skin grafting from the top, they shaved all the skin off and then put it on the back of my leg. That took ages to heal, the skin graft, the donor site where they shave the skin off. So cool. I don't know if you've ever seen skin I have graft. seen something yeah, like that before, yeah. yeah. So it's like shearing a sheep, but they do it in your skin, and they put it into this machine, and it puts all these holes in it so oh. they can get like three times the amount of skin that they, they actually take off. So they put that over because obviously the skin's live and it grows, it fills in those holes yeah. faster than it would. Yeah, so that's how it works. Yeah, it's crazy, crazy. It's crazy. Who would have thought to do that Literally. in the first place? <laughs> what was your first impressions of rehabilitation? And I know earlier, you know, within the first 20 minutes you'd said, I yeah. want to already start competing again. Did it Was oh. it as linear as a ride as you thought it would be? Um, well, not as you thought it would be, but it, it pro is probably was more linear than I thought it was going to be. Oh, really? Um, like I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I don't know how yeah. to get there or, or be me or, or be a Paralympian. Like that's what yeah. that was in my frame of mind. That yeah. was not. Sorry, there was actually something that before you even get to that stage, one thing that I can imagine would be a, a massive hurdle, or even if it, if it mm. was a hurdle for you, would be mentally, yep. like. How are you feeling at that time being – Yeah. Obviously, that's when, you know, the messages might stop coming in. You have a little bit less time. The, the event sort of starts to calm down. The dust is settling. Yeah. Was that a tough period um, or was it a, something that you look back on? And not really. So that, that like, when it starts calming down is actually after I get back yeah. home. Like, I leave hospital, got my prosthetics. Yeah, right. that, that happened later. Because every day in hospital, I had like three or four people meeting. I had like appointments. I had this. I had Things that. Things to do, yeah. Research to figure out, you know, you know, what type of prosthetics I'd get, and, and talk to the prosthetist about, you know, appointments and when, you know, are my limbs healing enough? Like all that sort of stuff. Constant doctors, constant physios, constant like hand rehabilitation. Yeah. Like it was just constant. 
And it was good because it kept me busy and it kept me sort of not not so much distracted. Kept me purpose, purpose. Yeah, 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 not yeah, not distracted, but giving me something to do. Yeah. And with the rehab, the the physio side of things, like I went away to physio on the first day in like two minutes. I was like, fuck this, this is shit. Like I should have been able to do throw the ball against the wall and, and sit on a buso ball. That was should be easy. It wasn't because yeah. all my limb and my balance and everything was all different and my center of gravity and, and whatnot. So that was really hard. And, and that first day of physio was the first time that I was able to move myself from the bed onto the wheelchair myself. And that's when the penny dropped that I was like, I'm a disabled person now. And that was really difficult for me to like comprehend. Mm. I was like, man, like every day it's going to be that hard, but it wasn't. It obviously got, it got easier, but just to, to get that, to, that mobility like independent mobility is a huge step but it was a huge penny drop moment and i was just like it sort of broke me into my and i was just like man this is this is not who i want to be this is not what i envisaged this is not where i was going to go you know type thing so that was that was hard but at that that exact time rach was there and she sort of consoled me and everything and we got through that and went away to physio and came back and she's like, right, let's let's set a goal. Let's like set something to to help push you through, for, to, to motivate you to, to get you there. And like, oh, I was like, well, you know, I probably should try and be up standing for where the guidance got home from Afghanistan. It was, they had three months left of the tour. So we're halfway through our, our deployment um, before they got home. And um, so I just threw myself at the physio and by the time I left hospital, I finished up at Greenslopes Hospital on, on the south side of Brizzy. And um, I was doing like eight hours of physio a day. I was just wow. like, nothing else to do. So let's just hook in. So um, I lost a lot of weight in hospital. Like my body was just sort of eating itself, trying to repair and everything. And then, yeah, got got strong and then got sort of, I sort of started to feel like healthy, if that makes sense. Started yeah. to feel like I was capable to move myself around. I was strong enough. My arm was repaired enough so I could move it. And so I broke a heap of bones yeah. in a row and, and whatnot and, and ligament damage in my fingers. So it was a lot and of that's fully Yeah, it's good to go. Yeah. I just can't straighten my finger. Now I've got oh, yeah. the ET finger going on. Yeah. But, <laughs> but other than that, um, yeah, and, and then I broke fourth metacarpal, like burns, had some shrapnel, some wood shrapnel go up in here. Um, yeah, big big wound there, um, big slice down here, and yeah, some stuff across the top of my thumbs, and then just burns down my arm here. So, yeah, lucky, extremely lucky, lucky. You know, there'd be a triple amputee that would yeah. have been really hard to paddle. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, yeah. So, um, and then got got out of hospital and got my prosthetics and got up walking and managed to get I meet the guys at the plane door up standing, and it was it was fucking awesome and. To be there and to have that that sort of closure, that sense that I'd you know done done my mission, yeah, completed my mission, and um, to be a part of the the welcome home parade at Nogra Barracks, just over at um, Gallipoli Barracks there, and um, you know having having that sense of closure to to say like All right, my time as a soldier is now finished, now what do I do and like what what like where should I where should I point my energy type thing. Um, and I had a lot of opportunities. Um, there was people like, oh, you come to this thing and come to this adventure, come to this. I was like, fuck, whoa, 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 whoa. Like just pump the brakes a bit. Let's Connections just, through the, the army or just yeah, everything? veteran like, support services. Yeah. Um, there was Mates for Mates, which was a new charity at that time. They, at the time they were based out at Breakfast Creek, you know, Breakfast yep. Creek Hotel. Yeah, right next door to that. 
and they, they were great. I wasn't quite there yet and I was like, oh, just give me a bit of time. I need to figure out where I'm going and what I'm doing and got the opportunity to go over to the States and do this thing called the Marine Trial Games, which will in turn become something like the Invictus Games. Yep. Which is what it's based off. So it's a, a you know, Paralympic style event for wounded, injured and ill, servicemen and women. And um, I went over to that and I was only six months post-injury. This is in March 2013. Six months. Yeah. And I was still very fresh. Like I couldn't walk very far. I was still a bit sore and, and I get really tired really quickly walking because they say that a double amputee legs will use 60% more energy than an able-bodied would. So that's, you know, that's sort of the energy expenditure there. And I sort of was there and I got to see people like me who had been through almost identical situations and them running, them playing basketball, them swimming, them riding hand cycles, them archery, like all sorts of different things, different sports. And because I was so active and, you know, and sporty when I was growing up, I was like, it was so familiar for me. I was like, all right, I'll try this, try that, try mm. this. And, you know, I was shit at basketball, couldn't shoot. So um, <laughs> didn't mind uh, swimming and, and archery. It was, archery was good because it was like not a physical sport. It was yep. more like finesse, so skill-based, So, which is something that, you know, I did enjoy doing, but I didn't want to do it full-time. It was just sort of a hobby thing. And typical me, I went out and bought like a full archery set. And <laughs> <laughs> that sounds a lot like me. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to buy an archery set myself. Yeah, it's good fun. It's good. It's good. It's just, I bought it and then it sat in the shed for like a year and a half. I was like, I need to sell this. I sold it. But yeah, and then, yeah, I just got to see what a lot of people of disability will say, you know, you, you can't be what you can't see. And I got to see what I could be. And yeah. that was really important for me in terms of my mental progression and mental healing. Um, and I sort of was like, well, shit, like I'm going to try all these sports. I'm going to try everything. So I came back and I, I went over to New Zealand and tried in their athletics program. Um, I was doing swimming for my rehab. So that was sort of a part of it. Um, and then I went over to New Zealand again and did like this kayak trial and for, for power canoe and they were like, oh shit, like you, you stayed up in the K1, which is an incredibly skinny boat, 38 centimeters and super, super skinny. And um, I was like, oh shit, I might be all right at this. So I did a bit of whitewater kayaking at high school in, in Queenstown. I was like, like, yeah, we, we would love to support you. We want you um, to, to see you, how far you could go. I was like, okay, cool. I'm not moving to New Zealand to do this. And they're like, oh, okay. Um, well, you know, we, we were not able to support you remotely. So either you train over there and pay yourself and then come back for some try and trials and then we'll head overseas and, and do world champs. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll see how that goes. So I came back to Australia and then found a coach down in, in Gold Coast. And I was like, oh, this is the situation. She's like, well, these are my fees. And I was like, oh, like I'm not, this is expensive. And I wasn't in a position to be able to afford all that. Um, you know, off my back and off my own my own pocket. So I was like, well, what happens if I paddled for Australia? What What's the benefits of paddling for, for Australia? And she's like, well, this is what we provide here and this is what you'd have access to because I wouldn't have access to physiologists, biomechanists, like nutrition, psych, all that sort of stuff that's really in physio and, and all, all the support services that come with sport that are sort of in the shadows a lot of the time. Of really, you know, make a team bond and make an athlete work and – and she's like, oh, I was like, well, give me a couple of months to see how far I can get and, and, and how much I progress. This is in like December of 2013. And um, let's see how we go. So I just sort of moved down to the Gold Coast and, and hooked in. 
Yeah. Unbelievable. Before we get into that, there was something that you really said that I absolutely loved. You said you can't see what you can't, you can't be what you can't see. Yeah. It's an awesome, it's an awesome analogy. I I think that's relevant for everyone. Everyone. Yeah. It's such an awesome. Well, like think think like women's AFL and like what that's done for women's sport. Yeah. Netball, you know, like all all the, all the different demographics of of life and, and culture and religion and ability and all that, you know, you've got to be able to see someone like yourself doing something that you could potentially do. And mm. it's it's the potential part that if you have the potential and the belief that you could get there, there's nothing stopping you really. Like it's having that, that path laid out by someone else. You know, there's always, you know, icebreakers out there paving the way for people, you know, so look at Dylan Alcott and yep. – and you know, Churia Pitt and and people like that, and and you know, Peter Bowl. Yeah, people and, inspire so each other. Yeah, 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 it's just yeah. It's, it's it's crazy. Yeah, and you know, Australia is full of them, and and we've we've got so many amazing examples of people of what we can achieve, and we've got so many people in behind that that could get there as well. They just mm. got to realize that they have the potential. So it is important to 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 show what is possible regardless of, of who you are or what your background is. 100%. And, and I know that is an extremely broad um, term that anyone can relate to. Mm-hmm. But in, in general, if there is anyone out there that, uh, you know, young person that is living with a disability at the moment, what would you say to them the best way to get into that field that maybe they are? Is it just go and explore what you want to do and try and find someone doing something like watching and seeing what you yeah, want to be. Right. Is that? I, th- I think so. Right, reach out to this community. Is so important. Yeah, isn't yeah. It? And reach that out can to be that really, person. Yeah, reach out to that example. Like you know, I, I get a few messages a week. You know, from young people with disabilities trying to get into paracanoe or, or a sport or, and things like that. So you know, there's there's more more able-bodied people out there than there are disability, but the hidden minority of the disability is what's the issue and that having them to have access through social media now thankfully we can use that for good not not bad and having that accessibility for communication between these people whether they are in a wheelchair and they're chatting to nick rewa it doesn't matter you know whoever just getting that flow you know if and a lot of the time they may not reply, but sometimes they might, and they might open up a door or point you in the right direction, or this is how I did it. Or I think um, having social media, and, and you know, I, I hate it, but at the same time, it's it's a great thing it's a to have to, have, to, yeah. to show what's possible, but also to help people achieve what they want to achieve as well. So, mm. um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's That's just, great. Yeah. I, you, you said earlier. Um, and, and paraphrasing probably not the exact words and I don't want to say something that you didn't say, but it was something like, you know, about being someone with a disability now and it was like from that first maybe time of realising that versus meeting people, seeing how normal mm-hmm. of a life that you can live and an inspiring life and an impactful life and a purposeful life, did that change quite quickly from other people around you? Um, yeah, it, it did, and it only only happens. The only realization that there are other people like me is is only in my sport realm, really. Yeah. So I'd never met or seen anyone with bilateral amputee. Like I'd never, yeah. You know, I'd seen people in wheelchairs and things like that, but never really taken much notice of it. Never really, um, even it just wasn't in my world. It was, and that's you know, hard to. It's hard to say now because now it is my world, yeah. and I see heaps of it. And I'm more clued to the, 
the issues that face people with disability, including myself. But at the same time, like it was just so foreign. And now having this community around me, these amazing people, especially the Paralympic community and and broader, you know, there, mm. there's so many amazing examples of, of what can be achieved as well. Yeah. No, incredible. Do I think we've already answered this question by the whole discussion today, but what, what do you think makes you such a, a good athlete? Is it and I don't think it's actually to do anything with to do with actually athlete, being an athlete, it's no. just your I, drive, is it? I think might be a bit arrogant saying this, but trainability. If if you're abil- you're if you're willing to learn to it, someone who's done it or or who knows better no ego yeah yeah just take it right out and even if you think it's wrong just give it a go just you might be surprised that 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 perspective or that style might be better for you Mm. and like my coach she's not my coach anymore but the coach that started me down on the gold coast andrea wood she was the one who was like she was like a, a drill sergeant in the army she was very structured very routine very strict and very very good at getting the most out of or seeing what was possible with a certain athlete and having her like watch over me and me understand it. Like a lot of the time I was just so frustrated by the whole thing. This is not working. Like this is, this is shit. Like the boat's not set up right. The paddle's wrong, blah, blah, blah. Blaming all the equipment by yourself. You know, having that, having that ability to, to take it on board to learn and really try even though you're absolutely buggered like at the end of the session you're doing one one more effort or you're doing an extra 100 meters of technique that's better than it was before you know all those little bits add up and you become you know a master of your craft i love it it's um it really resonates a quote uh, a mate had said to me recently and i think he was actually giving me feedback when he said it because when you said your strengths with coachability, I think as a young bloke, it was probably my biggest weakness was that, you know, like nothing yeah. was ever my fault. Like it was always the way it, you know, yeah. it was. And I think I'm trying to get a lot better at that space and I feel like it has actually become a strength of mine. And he said, um, and he's a lot older than me, this guy, and I really look up to him and I can, he always comes to me for advice. Mm. And he said, the best thing you can ever be in life is you can take advice from anyone mm. because even if it's wrong, yep. you can learn from other people's mistakes. Yeah. And it's just not thinking you have the answer to absolutely everything because we really don't. No, no, hell no. Another, another great one is, is persistence is a great substitute for talent. So if you just keep keep trying, keep yeah. going and going and going and then eventually you will become the one that's talented. Love it. Talk us through um, the first Paralympics. Yeah, so it was um, in Rio 2016. So almost, almost exactly four years, just over four years after my injury. Um, been through a couple of world champs up against a really amazing paddler, um, Marcus Mendy Swoboda from Austria. He's like six-time world champion, wow. absolute gun. I'd beaten him. I can him. imagine they love their um, paddling. paddling in Yeah, uh, in they Austria. like the white water more yeah. than the sprint, the the Austrians. Um, the Hungarians are the biggest paddling nation. Really? Yeah, it's like their second uh, national sport wow. and they go nuts for yeah. it, man. It's crazy. <laughs> like Spanish soccer players. Um, they, uh, yeah, he, I, I beaten him in 2016 at the World Championships. It's the first time he's been beaten. And I was like, oh, he's going to come back with vengeance for the games. But it, he went the other way, unfortunately. He got, he overtrained, he was tired, he lost a lot of weight, he was real nervous and there was a lot of pressure on him because he was like the man for, for paddling. You know, he'd won so many times and um, he was very good. He even made like the under 23 able-bodied Austrian 
team. So he, he was very, very good. And I managed to beat him at the world champs. I just learned how to start. That was my problem. And um, uh, yeah, I learned how to start and got, got stuck in. And when I like lined up in Rio, um, the first race, the heats, you know, they were, it's 9.30 in the morning, you know, we're right under the Christ Redeemer statue, Copacabana Beach is just over there and Eponema's just there and all my drunk mates from the army and, and life and, and, and all that were in the crowd, led by my father, I should say, <laughs> absolute animal, but <laughs> they're making like wizard sticks and, and just, you know, as, done like all-nighters and, and all that sort of stuff. They're having a great time, which is good. And I was just like, man, how cool is this? Like, how cool is this? Like, lining up there and, and being there. Paracanoe debuted in, in Rio, so it was a new sport. So it was a bit of – bit on, on – um, what's the word? Like, we had to had to put on a good show as yeah. well as a sport. Yeah. Not that I – it was all up to me, but, you know, there was a, lot, a bit of pressure on that and there was, you know, obviously – trying to win to be best the best there and to do well and and but i was sort of like this is so fucking cool like this is amazing and then i wasn't listening properly and they could start i was like ready so i was like, oh jesus like i wasn't even set i wouldn't because i don't use my rudder I, I set it straight before i, I do a 200 meter straight line kayak if, if anyone's yeah. wondering so it's very straight lines a bit like rowing but it's you know facing the right way and all that sort of things 200 meters it's over very quick about 40 45 seconds and um, so when when you, you get set to go, you want to have your boat in the right. Strange. And I wasn't. I was just like, man, this is awesome. This is for the final? Or for no, this is just in the heats, thankfully. But I, I, I didn't stuff up too bad. I just was, was not ready and I should yeah. have been ready. And um, I took off and, and he said, ready, set, go. And we went off. And I, I did a very – everyone did a really slow time. I think it was just like the place we were. It was so, yeah. so cool. So everyone was, did about 44 seconds, and which is pretty slow for our, our class. And we're like, oh, shit. So, and then the next day I was like, all right, I'm not doing that again. So I went and saw my mates, you know, saw my family and said, yeah, cool. Have fun. See you, see you tomorrow and just leave them. So the thing with an athlete at an Olympic, Paralympic Games is you don't actually get any spare time until your event's over. So it's all performance, bang, 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 bang. So you get time, but you're at, at the village and you're just chilling out. It's like, you know, game day. You, or yeah, you're, you're, you're tournament. Yeah, you just got to relax and recover and whatnot. Do an ice bath, get a bit of physio, a bit of massage, and then, you know, have a good feed and get a good night's sleep. But um, and then the next day was finals. I was like, all right, I know what I don't want to do is, and that's miss the start. And um, so I lined up. Marcus qualified second fastest behind me. We all did slow. As I said, like everyone was pretty overwhelmed by the situation on day one, but we're all really close together, all within like tenth of a second or something. Oh, and um, I was like, oh, Marcus, he's going to come out of the gates so quick because he's very good at the start. He's, he's quite a big, strong guy. He's a bit shorter than me, so it means he's real sharp with his with his starts. And I was like, if I can keep within one boat length with him at 100 meters, I reckon I'll have him. So Because my, my strength of being a longer, sort of taller guy is a bit more endurance. Yep. So um, I knew that if I was able to do that, I could catch him. And um, so we ready, set, go, and I nailed my start almost as good as, as Marcus, but him – him being a bit stronger, he blew out and he got about half a boat length ahead. And I was like, oh, I've got him. I'm, I'm, there's 50 meters to go. 100 meters were like neck and neck. And I was like, oh, shit, I've got this. I've got this. And then and then I started going and I sort of got into my groove, got real good rhythm and good flow. And then the lactate start, like comes up, just gets you. And um, I'm paddling along. I'm like, fuck, where the fuck is everyone? Like, Because <laughs> I, I, I must have just had another gear and, and just took off. And 
cross the line and, and when you cross the line it beeps and you know, I looked around and then the rest of the crew, the crew comes through and finish like a second 1.27 seconds or something like that ahead of Marcus and, and that's, the rest a, of the that's team. a lot yeah it was it was a lot more than I was expecting I think everyone was expecting it was just like oh shit like and I was like, oh, thank fuck that is over. Like, just, and I, w- I didn't feel nervous. I was a little bit nervous just before the start, but it all went away and, and whatnot. But I didn't realize that the overall pressure, the sort of background pressure that I'd put on myself to actually get there and then line up and I'm sure I've got a chance here, might go on a win and, and then had an all right heat and, and then didn't have a chance to do a semi final. So I didn't know what, it, what I could actually get to. And having that opportunity just to race and then and race in the final and, and just execute really well, I was, I was super pleased. But it was this huge wave of relief, like mm. physical blanket just fell on me. Um, and it was, it was kind of a weird feeling because I wanted to be happy, but at the same time I was like, oh, man, I'm just glad that's over. Like, <laughs> I can really relate to that. That's yeah. unbelievable. Because yeah. it's surprising though because chatting to you today, you seem like a really cool, calm, sort of collected sort of individual and i was going to ask you like pre-race mm. anxiety going into events is it something that you have or is um, do you more quite a reserved? little bit a little bit but did you do much in performance psychology sort of stuff like that is it something that you no, were doing when you're really yeah uh, not really and I, I i met one of your previous guests about a couple of weeks ago jonah oliver, oliver. unbelievable guy um, yeah, yeah it'd, be, it'd be nice to get him on, on the on the background but yeah um well, it, the reason i actually asked that is yeah. Because of what he says about like every race is just a race with the, like you know even when you get to those events of the gold medal you're yeah. racing for a title it's yeah, the literally the same. it's the same race yeah yeah it is and and I think what actually gets rid of nerves is prior preparation yeah. so if you know if you've done all your prep first you've done all the training you've, you're strong and you're fit you're executing you've 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 nailed your starts and your training sessions you've nailed your lactate you've nailed your endurance you've nailed your speed power and you nailed your gym like there's not there's not much more you can do so therefore go um, out there and do it you, you just go out there and do it so you, you've taken out all the questionable parts that you know did i do enough and and that's the biggest question when you line up there and if you're nervous in my opinion and in my experience, I haven't done enough. And I've, I've, I experienced that in 2019. I got married, I went on honeymoon, got pissed, got fat, you know, yeah, like did all the things I wanted to do and loved it and would do it again in a heartbeat. But when I lined up six weeks later <laughs> in World Champs, yeah. I was like, I have not done enough. <laughs> <laughs> I have not done enough and I know it. And I'm, I'm nervous because I'm expected to win and I've, I expect myself to do well. And I was not not in the right form, and I, and I knew it. So I was like, oh, fuck. like I was not not I wasn't happy with my races. I was super nervous. I only just won in the last like two meters mm. of the race. Just got my nose ahead, and it's due to my finish. And that's my strength saved me. My weaknesses were rubbish. They brought me down. Like all that sort of stuff. So. Having that prior preparation down pat, you're more likely to, to achieve. And that's why I'm in Rio and in my finals in Tokyo, I was just so incredibly not, I wouldn't say confident, I was comfortable. Yeah. And you were almost like from what you're saying there, you know, to be honest, in a lot of my career, I was nervous because I feel like I wasn't prepared and not, not physically, but more just that mental side of it. I didn't deal with yeah. the, the anxiety and the nerves well enough. Yeah, I think there's process to it in terms of 
working through in your own mindset. But when when it comes down to it, there's only so much you can do, and yeah. you got to con- only control the controllables. Yeah, and it's a constant athlete saying that it is. Yeah, and I, I I say this one a little bit, but we had a guy, um, David Butterfin, who's one of my favorite high performance managers I've ever had, and he goes through a lot of really good mindfulness techniques. And um, one thing he always says is, uh, you know, you go to this place, you go to your triggers, you go to this, talks all through these bits. Mm. And just before you run out, he goes, but if that fails, he goes, just fucking get it done. Yeah. And it's almost like yeah. that last bit, it's like- It's more important. It's more important. Yeah. He goes like, you know, you can go to all these things and make yourself yeah. feel better, but at the yeah. end of the day, just fucking do it and <laughs> yeah. just get it done and just perform. And you're like, okay. Yeah, so yeah. that's always actually always a good yeah. one just to remember that at the last point. Yeah. Well, there's, yeah. It, Mike Tyson's got that great quote. It's like everyone's got a plan until they get punched in, in the, the face. face. Yeah, <laughs> 100%. What's, um, what's your goals? What's your plans next with, with training, with life, with, with everything? What's, what's on the works? I know you're just doing another re-release of the book, sold out. So you're doing a hard copy cover now as well? Uh, soft cover, yeah. Soft cover yep, copy, yep. sorry. But, but cheaper for everyone. So oh, nice. um, yeah, no, it's good to be able to tell my story in a, in a bigger version. You know, yeah. I do a lot of public speaking and only get 40 minutes to spin a yarn and we yep. a bit more here today. But Yeah, so, so can people access you to come and speak to their workplaces and stuff like that? Yeah, 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 of course. Fantastic. Yeah, we'll have yeah, all those so, links in the, in yeah, the show thanks, notes man. as well. Um, yeah, so this year I had it off um, mainly because the Tokyo campaign was a five-year campaign and, and I was so buggered and tired and sore and – like just sort of off it. I was demotivated by it. I was super pessimistic about the Tokyo event. I didn't think it was going to happen. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it did and I was like, oh, Jesus. But I, I was training through the whole thing. But mentally I was like, it's not happening. It's yeah. not happening. But I was always physically trying to, to be better and, and my results sort of show that. But, um, yeah, so I just was like, I need I need a bit of a break. I need to be able to do whatever I want to do without the expectation of waking up better than I was the day before. And, yeah. you know, that's the life of an athlete. Well, it's a, the it is, but also when, you know, you're competing, obviously there's world champs and mm. Olympics and Invictus Games and all these sorts of, but when they're so spread out, it makes yeah. it even harder because your, your seasons become a lot longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And especially that that, that Tokyo campaign, yeah. like we didn't compete internationally for two years. You can't Not, just go week by week. Yeah. It's just like. And then all of a sudden you're on the world stage at the biggest sporting event in our sport and you're yeah. like, far out. This is this is a lot to take on. 100%. Um, and like Rio, Rio and Tokyo were very different in terms of like having a crowd and having the meaningful of actually getting to the Paralympics after what had happened four years prior and then achieving that gold. And then in Tokyo, I wanted to go there and prove that I wasn't just a fluke and yep. I could perform even better. And then they added the outrigger canoe so um, to the Tokyo campaign. So which I one's that? The- so I did the Va'a canoe. It's a yep. VL3, which is my class. So it's an outrigger canoe. Um, so it's a single blade, doesn't have a rudder, so you got to sort of steer it with the uh, the paddle, and then the kayak is what what I did yeah. in, in Tokyo and Rio. And um, but that the the rudder canoe is that one paddle, is it? Yeah, it's one yeah. blade. Yeah. 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 Whereas obviously the kayak's two. got two. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, over the side, so it's nice and balanced. Whereas a canoe, you know, you get to either Fuck steer it with a, a type of a stroke or you change sides, which is what I do. So. Yeah. Um, and, and you know that was added to the program, so it was a big, big thing. And I wanted to prove that because I'd never, never been beaten in that boat, and still, wow. still haven't. So at the in that sort of environment, I've been beaten elsewhere and, yeah. and against able bods. I should add, but yeah, yeah. and it, it just yeah it was very different. So I was just like, I need a break. So I just want to have a, a chill out. And, and my wife Rachel, she's an ICU doctor um, now here in, in Brazil and at Royal wow. Brisbane, and so we moved up from the Goldie. Um, just for, you know, it's only an hour up the road, but she, you know, she works 13-hour shifts, so that's just not possible to commute up the, the M1. 
And um, so we just live, live around the corner from here. And then, um, yeah, so just took a year off, did a heap of speaking, did some uni, um, sort of chipping away at a, a Bachelor of Aviation Management just to oh, see man. where that goes. Um, doing a heap of speaking. Um, uh, what else am I doing? I learned how to ski on a sit ski, um, which was bloody awesome. Where'd you go? I went to Perisher first to learn and then I went over to New Zealand and I broke a rib and gave myself a concussion and <laughs> all sorts of stuff. So... And everyone's like, oh, you're going to do that in the Paralympics? Like, fuck no, you've got to have balls of steel to do that. Like, Holy shit, man. I've just gotten into skiing the last couple of years yeah. and it is a seriously dangerous It's so sport. addictive. Like, it like- is so, <laughs> so fun. Yeah. I think there's two things that like make me giggle like I'm a little boy again. One yeah. is that and the other one's golf. Oh, uh, yeah. Have yeah. you gotten into golf yet? Yeah, yeah, I've played, but I just don't play enough to to get consistently. You're probably good. still better than. What are you playing off? <laughs> off nothing. You haven't had any cap yet. But last, no, nah, no, nah, yeah. last time I I played, I reckon I had the shittest game of golf I've ever had in my life. Mate, that's me every week. I would stress. Have shot like 180 or. Yeah, that's fine. Like that's pretty good. I'm happy with that. <laughs> yeah, no, under 100, under 100 is pretty good. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so yeah, but uh, yeah, it's just yeah, one of those things. You, you know, you just try different things, and I I always went back to New Zealand before I lost my legs and go yep. snowboarding for. a a week or so every year and then i was like oh i could probably learn how to snowboard i needed certain prosthetics and i was talking to my prosthetist jens and, and he's just like oh why don't you just sit skate like it's gonna be heaps easier for your body it's hectic and, and like shit it goes fast so fast like, there's actually a young guy from the giants yeah right. um oh god he, his name's mistaken me a young guy used to play um afl in the academy mm. in the giants that's now um competing in that yeah, yeah he had a rare around. disease and Lost some some limbs, but he's now competing, which is incredible. Is I think Josh? it might be, yeah, Josh. Did he go to the Paralympics? I think he might have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because Josh Josh isn't if I did skiing, I'd be in his class. There you go. I think because he's a bilateral amputee. Yep. He lost his legs. But yeah, it was just so awesome. So and, and I had fun doing it. And I picked it up really quickly. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's got risks, and that's why I didn't do it when I was paddling. Because sure. I knew I was gonna hurt myself. Will you go back to paddling? Yeah, yeah. So I've, I've yep. just started again. Great. Um, so got back on the horse and very slowly. And, and uh, as I said at the start, like I've prioritized my life rather than my training this yep. year. And I'm moving back down to the Gold Coast in January so I can get fully back into it because on the Gold Coast, that's where the high performance center is. The canals there, they're all sheltered waterways. So yeah. you can get out there and, and really enjoy it. Yeah. And plenty of bull sharks. There are a lot of bull sharks. Yeah, Which is yeah, scaring yeah. itself. Um, before I let you go, what's on the horizon? Then what sort of competitions are you eyeing off? What's the nearest one that you you want to take over? Yeah, so next year is our busiest year in, in our sport. So the the year before the the Paralympic or Olympic Games, there's like World Cups and there's leading into the World big, Championships. Yeah. There's your national champs, all that sort of thing. So there's a more competition next year than there are actually on the the Paralympic Olympic year. So. Yeah. Um, so next year is going to be busy. I just you know, want to go there and you know, get top six, get qualified, and, and be happy with that. I know you know due to my preparation or that le- le- lack of, um, it'll be a an interesting sort of competition. There's a few guys that are coming out of the woodworks that yeah, are right. kicking kicking amazing goals and going quick and faster than I've ever gone. So it's going to be interesting. But you know, pretty keen to get over to Paris and go to the Paris Paralympics in 24 and. Hopefully my friends and family can come along to this one. Unbelievable. So, yeah. so cool. Mate, it's been incredible. I really um, really do appreciate your time today. Yeah, You've been extremely you. generous, inspirational story. And, um, yeah, sitting down and talking to you today, it's always funny when you hear, you know, you read a bit about stories. And, again, I didn't want to go too much, but it's just it doesn't – you haven't surprised me, but that's the wrong thing to say. Your story has been so 
fascinating, but to sit here and hear it firsthand today, it's it's been even more incredible that I yeah. could have expected. So yes. I really appreciate um, all your time, your generosity, and doing incredible things, mate. So I can't wait to see you get back in the on the paddle next year, and we'll be supporting. Maybe we might even come over to Paris too. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I like the sound of your old man and friends. They sound like <laughs> yeah. a good a good bunch yeah, to yeah, party with. Leading, leading the ruckus, he will. Unbelievable. Yeah, we'll cheers. um we'll have everything in the show notes, guys, as well. If you want to check out Curtis's um, book or, or get him for a guest talking um, at your business, because it's been unbelievable, mate. I couldn't recommend it more. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time. Awesome. Cheers, Dale. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Producey podcast. If you enjoyed the show, that'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, subscribe, tap the bell, leave a review, or even share with one of your friends, or you could do them all. If you want to get in touch to share feedback, suggest a guest, or advertise with one of our podcasts, then email hello at producey.com. Thanks for tuning in. IllyXX. KO's got you covered this footy season with every game of every round live and ad break free during play. Wow, in the AFL this week, there are some huge games. Collingwood versus Adelaide, live with no ad break stream play, exclusive in Victoria. Giants versus Bulldogs. Oh, I remember that game. I think it was 2016 at Giants Stadium to get the Bulldogs into the grand final. I will never forget that one. Live with no ad breaks free during play, exclusive in Victoria. And Essendon versus North Melbourne. Geez, that's the old Ben McKay Cup. Exclusive to Fox Footy, available on KO. Don't forget those NBA playoffs. They are dominating at the moment. It is just getting bigger and better than ever. Watch every game of both Eastern and Western Conferences finals live with ESPN on KO. There's plenty of room for everyone, no matter what you want to watch. So get on board with KO, now also available on Hubble.